Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next level. I'm JBL here with my best friends, Sarah Longwell and Tim Miller of The Bulwark. I'm coming to you live from New York City, the morning after Joe Biden's first State of the Union address. Sarah, I got a question for you. No, I got cut off. Now, hold on. You didn't get cut off, Tim. Just somebody is asking somebody else a question that isn't you. Okay, I just, I just, Sarah, thought, I am um, having a weird whiplash in the realization that the two most effective and best presidents of my lifetime are Ronald Reagan and Joe Biden. Yeah, Tim, the reason he's coming to me is because he wants to do his like Joe Biden victory lap. And that's, that's why. Okay, uh, well, I just thought we might just take a moment to discuss the fact that JVL's like little dig at me there because I am coming at you live from New York City, actually. Yeah, <laughs> we are coming at you live from New York City. Not in New Jersey, anyway. So uh, JVL's a little sad. <laughs> but I didn't just swing over to visit him 45 minutes south in central Jersey, not during rush hour. Two and a half hours if it kinda, was a rush hour trip. But uh, besides that, it would have been it would have been nice to see you. And I apologize. I apologize. I'm sorry about that. But please, Sarah, continue your assessment of Joe Biden, greatest president ever, or second greatest president ever. I'm just saying, in our lifetimes, we have had we have had like three reasonably effective presidencies, and those have been Reagan, sure, Clinton, sure, sure. and Biden. And believe me, nobody finds that weirder than I do. Right. Yeah, I mean, like, we're talking about one speech last night, but I will I will say it was a quite effective speech, even with sort of the word gumbo that happens when he's, like, rushing through stuff. Even with that, even with some of the weird moments where I was like, wait, what did he say? Or the back and forth where I was like, wait, what is happening right now? Why is he doing a call and response? Why are we having a conversation? I'm super stressed out. But for a State of the Union, which is usually this, like, very boring PowerPoint of a thing... Watching him kind of bounce in there, just happy as a clam, making jokes I didn't understand because he wasn't quite spitting them out right. He did look like the happy warrior. And I mean, the best part was when he got into that joust with the Republicans and then owned them on it. Uh, like he he stuck with it. I was like, you're off script, bro. Don't do it. Don't do it. They're ever, this is bad. And then when he was like, you know, we're all in agreement. No cuts to Medicare and Social Security. It was amazing. It was. It was amazing. It was a it was a great speech. And I think, you know, I was out doing an interview yesterday and they were like, well, what does Joe Biden need to talk about in his speech? And I was like, I don't care what he talks about. What Joe Biden has to do is make sure that everybody's looking at him and thinking, yeah, he could do this two years from now, probably. And I felt like he accomplished that. So, you know, that's a that's a win. So just to demonstrate that I'm not a homer before we start this, I'm gonna I wanna confess something about that's happening in the interior life of Tim. Okay, an interior life of a gay man, which is very important in, in cinema, something that we spend a lot of time dealing with. Um, Not Kristen cinema, you mean the movies. In the movies, yeah. Um, her interior life is also interesting, um, yeah. but that's for another day. I had a thought yesterday that just kind of crossed my brain that was like, man, maybe it'd be nice if he did really bad, because that would just sort of kickstart the kind of discussion of like, we're not so sure that he can do it, you know, because it'd be better on balance. It'd be better for him to be, to demonstrate decline. Never, right? That'd be the best case scenario that he's, you know, some kind of, he does some sort of Benjamin Button type scenario. Uh, the next best case would be, you know, that he would, he would demonstrate decline as soon as possible, right? So that you could resolve it, right? Like the worst case scenario is that you demonstrate decline like debate two, 
of the general yeah, election, that's right? right. That's um, right. So that's something that's just a little nervous in my head, and that 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 ner- that's going to be a low level anxiety from now all the way till till next fall. So I say that to say I I, I wasn't like ready to go in there and be like rip off my shirt and reveal my Joe Biden T-shirt and his aviators. Same. And like, oh, okay, JBL. And yeah, yeah, please, JBL. And um, <laughs> come on, <laughs> don't, don't insult us. Um, the, uh, but I wish I brought my aviator shirt to New York City, where I am right now, uh, because I would be wearing it today. Well, it's chilly, but I would, if I could have an under, it's pretty tight too. So if there's a way to put it over top of something, I would wear it. And because um, he was phenomenal, I like really quite good. I like even not grading on a curve, good. There were certain things that I I did that you could nitpick. I saw Sarah's face. So I guess if you're grading on the curve of like, was it the greatest oration since Cicero? No. Okay. But like just as a political speech, as a serving a function of not grading him just based on the fact that he's 80, but just saying, hey, did a politician succeed at achieving their political goals, delivering a message, you know, being in, at times inspiring, a little funny, engaging. Yeah, he did. He did. He was good last night. I thought the message was good. Like I said, I want to nitpick a few of the things, but, um, you know, the call and response though was definitely the highlight. I was also like Sarah doing the no, 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 no. Yes. Thing. Like, like, please don't do this. No, (laughs) but I, I think that it achieved the main, like the best case scenario for him last night was a, to show energy, which he did that he capability, which he did. And to have uh, some Republicans behave like lunatics and have him seem kind of normal by comparison. And the call and response allowed that to happen. And then he achieved, I think even a higher degree of difficulty of like kind of doing the Joe Biden thing, which is like, okay, we made a deal. It's like dealing Joe doing it live. All right, here we go. (laughs) I, I don't, it annoys me. I do feel like the regular pundits, you know, your your both sides pundits, are were giving a little bit more credibility to the Republicans for the booing. I mean, all Joe Biden was doing was quoting Rick Scott's fucking proposal. Like that's all he was doing was literally <laughs> yes. quoting one Republican sentence. He wouldn't say the guy's name. I, that was my, I guess, my one critique. I wish he would have been like, guys, what? Why are you yelling at me? He's like, let's just print it yeah. out. He should have pointed at Senator Rick Scott and said, Rick, tell them. He's sitting right there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rick, do you have your hand out with you? Could you could you pass that around, Rick? Anyway, um, I, I thought that he really, that that part was the best for sure. We should stipulate that none of this matters. I don't think. We should. I don't think, I don't think there, th- this matters to us for purposes of understanding where Joe Biden is as a politician. It is important to us in terms of placing the two parties on a continuum and understanding in which directions they are moving. In terms of practical political effects, I think it it moves the needle zero one way or the other. Well, wait, I guess I'm not positive about that. Michelle Goldberg from the New York Times had called me like two days ago and was like, what do your focus groups say about Joe Biden running again? And I told her the truth, which is that everybody says they don't want him to run and they don't think he should and that they think he's too old. And she had written a piece... And it was like, Joe Biden has been a tremendous president and he should not run again. And she like quotes me in it. But I saw her, she wrote a a piece in the New York Times. Everybody was doing like these like quick evals of the speech. And she was like, you know, if that guy shows up all the time, I change my mind. Like I, I, I would withdraw. And so I think that as a practical political matter, there has been a kind of, everybody's aware of the timeline. Everyone is aware of the, what the dynamic that Tim laid out, which is, There's a a period of time, a window of time, and we're in it, where Joe Biden can say he's not running again and give the Democrats an opportunity to find an alternative. 
And even that's going to be messy and it's a little dangerous. And these are some of the main reasons why these are not things that you do lightly. And I would say just like the 22 midterms, this speech goes a long way to quieting the punditocracy. So I think that's maybe part of the political effect. Because I I mean, I, I think a lot of people just watch that speech and they're like, yeah, I mean, can he still do this, you know, at 82? Because he's 80 now when he's doing, when he's running. I don't know. But I don't know. You're sort of like, how am I going to just keep arguing this when, you know, he can get up there and like do a pretty good job? And I have a lot of substance things I want to get into, but like style, which I thought was the most important. I just think he, I think he hit that. And I do think that has a practical political effect, I would say. But you're right. Like average Americans aren't watching it, but I think it has an effect on the pundit class. So I, I would say one thing that I think is underrated about Biden is that he is a creature of Congress in a way that no president in our lifetimes has been. I mean, Obama was in the Senate for three years. George H.W. Bush was in the House, but, you know, a bazillion years before he became president. Like, Biden spent 35 years in Congress or something like that. Like, his, he does not have the temperament of an executive. He has the temperament of a dealmaker and a backslapper and, uh, you know, hey, we all get alonger. And so that's why he can walk into a room like that he just approaches a State of the Union, it turns out, differently than all other chief executives in our timelines, right? Which has been, you know, they're up there to be the big boss and tell people how it is. And I mean, Biden's up there given the Congress credit for every, like everything he was like, we did it, right? And it was a very bipartisan speech for most of it. I mean, he went out of his way. This is the weird thing, right? Biden went out of his way to talk about things that some Republicans wanted to do and say, and I understand this isn't a position of your party. And this isn't what all of you think. He said this about Ukraine. He said this about the debt ceiling. He said this about cuts to Social Security, Medicare. He opened by by congratulating Mike Kevin about getting the, the precious speakership gavel. He went and to Mitch. Mitch, right? You see, and Mitch, Mitch looked so unhappy with it. Like Kevin, in a weird way, was actually kind of like happy to him too. Like he's so into the gavel that even though he realized it was probably bad for him to be being praised by Biden, he couldn't resist. Like, <laughs> yeah. Mitch did not like it. It just I don't know, like this is Biden's default setting is the before times version of American politics, mm -hmm. which is sausage making. And he clearly enjoyed that more than any other president I've ever seen give a State of the Union. Like Clinton sort of enjoyed the performative aspects of it, but there's a lot of like lower lip biting. And, you know, he saw it as like a, a Shakespearean monologue. And this was like the friar's roast for Biden. He was super <laughs> into it. I do think Biden relaxed and happy because, you know, he does oratorily, he kind of rushes through things through a kind of clenched teeth and like squinty eyes, like the lights must be bright and he's had a lot of Botox. And so like- <laughs> I think it's Botox. I, he's had a lot of Botox, but he um, he was happy and that was palpable. I just turned to my wife and I was like, I don't know, I was like, this is just like cheering me up. It was, it was, it was having a, a, a nice effect on me. When he was thanking Mitch, I was like, this is great. This is what we all wanted. And you know right? what? When his big verbal slips, and, and there were some of them, but like- he didn't confuse major sort of military countries that we're in conflict with. He just 
called Schumer the minority leader, which I was like, <laughs> that's funny. That's funny. How how big's that majority? I mean, he did seem like a like a loose grandpa. How big's that majority down there, Chuck? Chuck's holding up one figure and he's calling him the minority leader. That stuff's great. Like, whatever. And I think that also goes to the back and forth, which we kind of discussed, right? Which was, he liked that. Biden seemed happy to come to the conclusion. It's like, all right, guys. Yeah. We did this one. We we resolved this one. We don't need to, we, we can just move on the next time we got to get together to deal with the debt ceiling thing, because this is now off the table. I'm glad we all agree. All right, now let's move it on forward. And um, and yeah, I was watching, this was it Chuck Todd afterwards, and I love Heidi Heitkamp about as much as anybody. My husband worked for her, and I just, I love the Christmas parties. She's a great person. She's on the Bulwark podcast every once in a while. She cusses. Great. But she did a little bit of like, oh, I don't know. I felt like that was outside of decorum kind of commentary on that exchange. And I did, that was just one area. It's like, I don't think so. I think that's good. You know, that was a little raucous. And they're shouting, you're a liar. And he's like, what are you talking about, Jack? And, you know, they're going back and forth. And I, I thought, I mean, I thought that some of the Republicans looked a little classless. You know, like MTG looked like a little bit like she was, you know, at a, at the Chili's, like heckling the, the Friday night entertainment. But all in all, I thought that that... Like, again, it's kind of what we want. I, I thought it was like this melding of our new world yeah. with kind of someone from the old world who's like, who has like that decorum. And it's like, fine, you can throw a shot a name at me, but we'll just still cut a deal. And that's all good. That's, that's a superpower of Biden. So I think that really worked to his favor. It felt like the before times. Well, yeah, because it, it felt not like the Republicans were being hostile. One of the things that was I was taking away is like the mood with Trump was like, Dark in this way, the American carnage kind of way that made you feel sort of sick to your stomach. Whereas this did not. Like, even though they were looking stupid and behaving like that, like the way that Biden was engaging with them, smiling, keeping it really light, just made me feel yeah. like this doesn't feel dangerous. It doesn't feel like we're on the brink of something bad. It feels like, even though it was like outside of decorum, like it didn't feel mean, it didn't feel bad, it didn't feel dark in the way that things often have in the exchanges that people have been having. There was one part that made me feel a little gross, and that was Kevin's face. And not just his Muppet face in general, but like the face that he was making, that it seemed like maybe he was practicing because he had it like very the same the whole Studied time. Studied boredom. Studied boredom. There you go. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the, oh, I'm the jock. You know, and we're in this class that they're making me take. Or or maybe it's like the jock that had to do a sexual harassment training, maybe, afterwards. <laughs> they're sitting there and just kind of like rolling their eyes at the process. And I didn't love it. And my contempt for him was rising over the course of the hour. Hard for me to judge whether that was just me or whether that was something that maybe an average voter would have also felt. Like we said, maybe average voters aren't really even watching this, so it doesn't matter. But he was the only thing that was affecting my my uplifting, Longwell-esque, bipartisan spirit of the evening. How about Sarah Huckabee Sanders? Yeah, I was going to say, in terms of like people who cause my skin to crawl, and this has been uh, a feature of the modern sort of Trump Republican Party that causes me... I feel disoriented by it because the way that people would call Trump, they would be like, well, he's charming, he's charismatic. And I'd be like, that's interesting because I find him absolutely repellent. Like the sound of his voice, the look of his face, his stupid hair, like everything about it makes my skin crawl. Her slack-jawed, 
like delivery of things is fake for starters. Yeah. I I find her utterly repellent. I like, there's no part of me that is interested in listening to her words. He's got like dead eyes uh, because she knows better. She and I are roughly the same age. I, we, we share many friends in common. She was sort of in DC too. I know lots of people who know her. She's just an Elise Stefanik type who saw the power wind shift and totally changed who she was. And like when she was doing the press briefings, I felt the same way. I was like, this person is not talented. And so when the whole Republican party is like, this is our star. This is our next generation. I'm like, really? She's a Nepo baby. She's just another Nepo baby. But here's what I thought was interesting. So Biden's speech was mostly bipartisan, sought to credit Republicans, sought to distinguish the views of some Republicans from the others. Uh, it was very substantive in that, you know, he's talking about like the taxes passed on hotel bills and stuff like that. You know, it was all economy, economy, economy with a little bit of climate change and a dash of abortion thrown in. And then Sarah Huckabee Sanders is like, you know, they want you to worship their false idols with the woke mob <laughs> and their Marxist BLM. Anti- she is not running against the Democratic Party or Joe Biden. She's running against Rose Twitter, I guess, or like some version of like progressive Twitter. Or the person and you hate. I She's found that interesting. Like the one DEI official at your child's school or, you know, the one person that annoys you on your TikTok feed, right? Like that's who she's running against, like the random liberal in your life. And maybe that works, right? Can you do that? Can you win elections by running against a cartoon version of a person that people are annoyed by when the other person is just running on the economy? Can you, maybe you can win like that because I don't know. I wrote about this on, on Tuesday Looking at the polling data, people are fucking stupid. And I, you know, I, I am mystified by what people think and why. And it's not clear to me that Sarah Sanders' version of this, which is, again, is really the DeSantis yeah. playbook, that that can't win. Yeah, I think it worked. So just from my experience of last night, which I think is, was maybe closer to a median voter, after about halfway through, three quarters of the way through Joe Biden's speech, was like, I got the gist of this. And um, I'm here in New York City, so I went and met a friend for a quick drink, caught the end of the Lakers game, LeBron James, now the all-time leading NBA scorer, flipped over TNT, and then when that was over, went back and kind of rewatched, flipped on Fox, I wanted to see what the Fox guys had to say about the night, you know, and then flipped on my little social media feed and watched Sarah and, and saw if I, and I missed anything of Biden that way. So in that context, I mean, she seemed repellent, right? But the whole time I was sitting there, I was wondering... The tone had to be particularly bad for anyone that watched them back to back. You know, and that's the danger of doing these responses when, when you don't know what the other person's going to say, right? And, and that you know, her speech was not a response at all, which is kind of how these have started to become anyway, d- traditionally. But like in a particular tonal way, it was like, that guy? You know, old Deal and Joe up there complimenting Mitch and like that, like that was the guy, that's the guy that you're talking about forcing you to worship his flag. Like, what are you talking about? So for those people, the highly engaged, I think it might've been dissonant for the people that are like, oh, I watched a few minutes of Joe, turned on the basketball game, cooked dinner, you know, went and then turned on Fox News. I think it probably works for them. No, I think that's right. She had no substance. There's the problem, right? Is Gosh, if Joe Biden was just even 74 and had given that speech, (laughs) I would just be like, 
We're rolling into 24. If that's the best these Republicans have, those two visions are such a stark contrast. He's going to crush it because I will tell you on the substance. You know what's interesting is that while I don't always agree on, let's call it the particulars of the substance, like that each some of the bills that he's excited about don't necessarily excite me. Broadly on substance, this was a jobs, jobs, job economy, like no social stuff almost at all. And again, just this is one pushback I think I would have on this, like, does it matter? I do think that Joe Biden has the opportunity to teach some Democrats some incredibly important lessons right now about how you reach the broad middle. I mean, because, right, you one of the things you do with a speech like this that nobody watches or that not a lot of people watch is you, like, win the next day news coverage. It's going to be a lot of Marjorie Taylor Greene yelling, but it's also going to be, like, you talked about the economy. You talked about the economy. I mean, just hammering on jobs was exactly right. Democrats don't do that enough. Happy warrior, talk about jobs, tell people our best days are in front of us. Like, it was good on that substance. And side by side with the Ron DeSantis, woke is everything, and I'm mad all the time, and I'm fighting with you all the time. God, if Joe Biden was 74, I just I just think those, those mash, I think he would crush in that matchup. And then Huckabee's up there going, this culture war that they thrust upon us, it's like, what are you talking about? We just this watched like, a two- by American, made in America. What culture war? <laughs> we just watched a two-hour speech where he barely fought any culture war points. And then you're you're leading off with this fully kind of imaginary like war of your own creation. By the person who's the first bill in Arkansas that they're putting forth is a ban on drag brunch. The first bill of the legislative session in Arkansas is a drag brunch ban. You know, and so you have these little moments where it's like the end, like she's like, oh, yeah, and we also have this, I'm announcing tomorrow this education reform bill. And I'm like, okay, that's probably fine. I don't know. Who knows? I'm sure there'll be stuff tucked in there that's don't say gay. There'll be stupid culture war stuff tucked in there, right? But like, they're so close, right? Like, had you just like re reoriented that speech, right? Like Biden did and made it 80% about these substantive things that you think people are mad about and then throw in a couple little red meat for Fox. Okay, maybe that's a politically viable speech, but her speech seemed deranged. <laughs> One other thing that struck me is the difference between the parties. So you have Biden who talked a lot about helping the parts of the country that didn't mm. vote for him, right? He talked about, uh, you know, we got to build this. We have this bridge that's connecting Kentucky and Ohio, and uh, their representative didn't vote for the But You know what? I'll see you at the, the groundbreaking. That was another great important. moment. Great line. Yeah. These people feel left behind. These communities, which have been followed, you know, he's like half of what he talked about was helping, you know, basically red America. You know, very sympathetic. These people have been left behind. You get to say Huckabee Sanders, it's all, coastal elites are terrible. (laughs) And it is pretty obvious that, like, again, as a political strategy, I'm not trying to position this as altruism. Maybe he is a deep patriot and loves all people and all God's children. That's possible. But as a matter of politics, his, his is an outreach to parts of the country which did not vote for him in an attempt to convince them to vote for him. And the... Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Republican Ron DeSantis is like, we will attack the parts of America that don't vote for us in order to get more votes in the parts that do vote for us, I guess. Is this winning? Is that a winning strategy? For Democrats, not for Republicans. 
if you run those two things side by side, which is, I guess, what Trump did, right? I mean, Biden ran talking about, you know, helping small towns in the Midwest and Trump ran demonizing people who live in big cities. Is that going to work again? I don't know. I mean, Josh Shapiro ran this strategy really effectively, for example, yeah, the Biden right. strategy, you know, and yeah. um, and Josh Shapiro basically did exactly what you're saying, you know, and, and spent a lot of time outside of Philly and Pittsburgh and went out of his way to do that. And it paid off. It's a margins game, you know. I, he, I don't. I don't. Well, think, he won by fifteen points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. And Mastrano is a lunatic. But I, what I was going to say right. is, I don't <laughs> think that he won. I'd have to go to the county by county map. I don't know that he was winning in, you know, Luzerne County or whatever. Maybe he did. I don't know. I'll, I'll pull it up here while we're talking. But um, but that's probably not realistic for a Democrat in a federal race in twenty twenty. But can you cut the margins down? By doing that, I, it seems like yes. I don't. I think that there was good reason to be skeptical of that JVL. That that doesn't work. That that's an old, out of date style politics. But like we've seen some evidence the last twenty and twenty two that you can actually tamp down the margins by running in the Biden Shapiro in a meaningful way that matters. Maybe not you know as much as we'd like, but do Republicans have to run? the way that they seem to want to run, like, against half the country. No. Look at Mike DeWine. Do they? No, I, I'm, I mean this really. Can you win a Republican nomination in a you know, meaningful place or nationally without running against half of America? Let me contrast. So early Donald Trump, if you go look at early Donald Trump, he also looks happy. And he is attacking enemies, but he's also saying, like, we got to do better for black people and we need this economic. And so right. like, I think that part of the problem is that the way that people have interpreted I need to be like Trump with the fighter all the time is that they are lacking a kind of natural political instinct that Donald Trump did have where Donald Trump was able to bring different people in. And he, because he was sort of culturally moderate, which is like a way overly nice saying like, he had three wives and no moral code whatsoever and, like, whatever. Um, but but that that helped him in a way He's that I think— has been in an orgy. That's culturally yeah, moderate. That's right. That's right. But, like, people just didn't think that he was sort of, a like, a weird conservative, you know, stick in the mud, which is, I think, helped him with a lot of these, like, not religious working-class voters. But Ron DeSantis, I don't know if he can discover his inner— happy warrior, because he's grumpy. Sarah Huckabee Sanders was grumpy. And, like, that's the dichotomy. And so when Joe Biden last night was just so happy, that, like, radiated off of him. And I think he comes out like the groundhog and, like, knocks it out of the park. Winter's over. Spring's coming. He can't put the reps in on that, right? Like, part of being president and being able to project these things is, like, being able to do it all the time right? Because part of it is, if he just does it in one speech, I'm not sure, it doesn't break through the way it does when there's sort of the constant, you're constantly in people's faces bringing that energy. And I think that's one of the limitations is like, we need this Joe Biden all the time. Like that jobs and economy message is so helpful. It doesn't work. Like the darkness of Ron DeSantis and Sarah Huckabee work, if people feel dark, if they feel pessimistic. And so you sort of have to, you got to take that energy, that forward looking positive energy of Joe Biden, but like that has to be pushed and pushed and pushed to help people feel like the better times are ahead of us, to kind of nudge people into that happier place. Otherwise, the dark stuff resonates. And so I think that's part of the problem. Well, but this is button his M.O., right? His entire campaign and presidency has been a low-key, under-the-radar guy. 
And it has pluses and minuses, right? The, the big minus is that you can't convince people that everything is good unless you're out there saying that everything is good a mm -hmm. hundred times a day, right? This is, this is your, your point about what Trump did, right? He would just go around, look, we moved the embassy to Israel. And, you know, he had his three things that he just said over and over. And, yeah. and so everybody was like, yeah, I guess the economy is great. But that's not how Biden ran for president. It's not how he's carried himself out as president. It's not how he would run for reelection, right? He is a maybe workhorse, not show horse isn't the exact right metaphor. But that's just like not where he is at this stage of his life. And maybe that's a problem. I don't know. I do want to ask about the age thing, though, because the <laughs> Sarah Huckabee Sanders did basically what Eric Swalwell did during the primaries. Remember when Eric Swalwell would get up on the debate stage and basically shout at Joe Biden demanding that he pass the torch? <laughs> Give me the torch, old man. It's time for a gener new generation. And I always thought that's not the way to highlight an age contrast, right? I mean, the, you don't <laughs> you don't actually yell at the old man to give you the torch. Sarah Huckabee Sanders standing up there and saying, like, he's an old man who's 80 and I'm 40. Because, like, again, I think age is probably the single biggest weakness for Biden. I think all three of us would agree, prospectively, for 2024. I don't know that standing there and yelling about it is the way to exploit that weakness optimally. No, that's a show-don't-tell move. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if Sarah's up for that. Okay, I, I'm going to just, I'm going to stay out of trouble here and avoid You mean Sarah Huck, yeah, not me. Yeah, I'm up you, for it. You are. Yeah, yeah, Sarah Huck can be out of I'm just going to stay out of the image analysis of Sarah Huckabee Sanders as the age contrast. But, um, you know, one thing that's worth mentioning is that, I don't know if you guys noticed this, I feel like we should have mentioned it, the Biden glad handing, like for an hour after the speech. This also goes to like how he's really in his element. It's almost like he should give a State of the Union every month. Or they yeah. should do a monthly congressional kind of something. I don't know exactly what it is. But um, he was out there. You know, just like yucking it up with the Democrats, the handful of closet normal Republicans, you know, are coming up to him being like, hey, there's the one exchange, you know, because he's all mic'd up, right? There's the one exchange where the, the guy from California, uh, LaMatha, I think it's LaMatha, uh, is asking about water. And he's like, well, you know, I've been out there four times this year. I'm concerned about the water, too. Or since I've been president, I, I'm concerned about the agriculture. And like, we got to figure something out. And he's like, yeah. And the Republican guy's like, yeah, and I appreciate that. And I was like, oh, there we go. That's on tape. Oops. So, just, I, I do wonder if there are ways to get him to get him out that in his comfort zone, you know, that aren't that that don't accentuate his weaknesses of age, right? Which is you know some of the straight to camera, you know, so, some of that sort of stuff. Some of the interviews. I don't know. I have a couple substantive critiques, but I'm a little upset we haven't made it this far without mentioning the winner of the night, though. George Santos. Willard. No. Will oh, or yeah. Mitt Romney. <laughs> well, in that exchange. In that exchange. And then did you yeah, see yeah. Romney's post Biden response? Yeah, yeah. his walking no, no, talk. Three, Biden, Romney had three moments last night. Okay, this is like trigger warning. We're getting into the bulwark erotica zone here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so just FYI. But like Mitt Romney first goes in, he sees George Santos, and unlike, I think, you know, a weaker man that would just kind of roll your eyes and walk by, he confronts him. And he's like, you want to be embarrassed. You shouldn't be here. This is embarrassing. If you had any shame, you would be in the back. I, I mean, Romney like lights into him on the walk in because Santos you know, has nothing to do. So gets there early to wait on the aisle. Then afterwards, you know, there's a scrum of people. They're asking Romney, did you tell him that 
that he ought to be embarrassed and that he shouldn't be here? And he's like, yeah, he shouldn't be here. It's like, you know, what to uh, exaggerate is to say you had an A when you had an A minus, which is the best Mormon example ever, you know, uh, like high achieving Mormon like lie that you could think of. <laughs> that's, that's an exaggeration. A lie is when you say you graduated from a college you did not even attend. No, you're putting shame on the house. Like, what kind of message are you sending to the children? I mean, just savage Romney on the way out. And then he goes back to his office and tapes like an off-the-cuff response to Biden that's like, you know, I just want to start by saying appreciated what Biden said about Ukraine. Totally agree on that. Appreciated what he said about China and how we need to build here and they should be a competitor, not an adversary. And he's like, you know, and then I had a couple nitpicks. You know, I think that there were a few times where, where Biden might have been exaggerating or maybe he was a little disingenuous, let's say, when making this argument about the debt ceiling or about the deficit, etc. But, you know, all in all, I just thought that you guys might like to hear my response. Boy, was that heartwarming. I mean, I was just getting, I was just kind of rubbing myself a little bit while I was watching that. I was like, couldn't this, couldn't we have, why is there only one senator that can is capable of this? Just being like, there were some merits and there were some demerits and happy we could all get together tonight. Like, how about that? Uh, well, I will just say Lisa Murkowski also taped one of these oh, and it was it. also very similar <laughs> and great. Up front did a lot of like, appreciated this, appreciated the tone, this was good, agreed on this before she said, but too many Alaskans don't feel the optimism that President Biden was putting for. Like, fine, this is, you know what this is? Normal political discourse. Being an adult. This is normal political mm. discourse. The George Santos thing, that guy, you're right, because he doesn't have anything to do, he like, like Black Sabbath tickets or something, he was like camping out. <laughs> this, what a freaking attention whore. Like, he... I told you guys this at the live show when Tim was saying, oh, you know, his tolerance for pain. I was like, no, he mm. gets off on this. He wants yeah. to be there so he's in the camera shot when everybody walks down. I couldn't tell how everybody figured out what Mitt Romney was saying to him. Like, it was like real lip reading because the clips that were coming through, I couldn't tell the what he embarrassment. was saying. Now, you ought to be an embarrassment. I don't know. There's, I'm not a good lip reader, but there's something about the word embarrassment <laughs> that is, I, I, I don't know, that just jumped off the screen. Yeah. I also would just like to say about those scrums, because it was amazing. Like he was, I have two things. One is, I don't know how they do it with the walking with 1,000 reporters up against their shoulders, just like lobbing questions at them. I guess you get used to it because he seemed to feel like it was totally normal. But I was like, I would like die of claustrophobia from that. So that was impressive. I will say, watching Mitt be that version of himself about telling lies made me a little pissed off that we couldn't get more of that mitt, that umbraged mitt over lies with Donald Trump. Because it is one thing to go up and give the business to like the freshman who's being publicly humiliated and, you know, because he's a obviously a liar and like looks like a little like twerpy weakling. I'd like to see some of that big bad stuff have been directed at Trump. Um, like every time somebody does it, and takes a moral stand, I'm just remind it like reminds me of how much I know he did. He did during the impeachment. There were points in which he did, but he gave a huge speech yeah. in the middle of the primary. Remember? And but this is this is always talking about grading on a curve, right? Mitt Romney is the best of a group of people that were atrocious, right? And so there's still left a lot to be desired on an objective moral scale. I can't believe I'm gonna do this. I'd like to stand up for Mitt. <laughs>
Last week, we talked about the desire to change things from within. I talked about and that. And in the early days, <laughs> in the, I meant we as a group. And in the early days of the Trump administration, it was not crazy. It wasn't my preferred pathway. I didn't think it was likely to work out. But it was not crazy to think that it was important to get responsible grown-ups into the administration and that maybe that would, yes, the risk was it would legitimize and normalize Trump, but the potential upside is it might, like, save the republic, right? And do you guys remember that photo of Romney and Trump having dinner at yeah. Trump Tower? frog legs. That is, to me, almost like one of those uh, seance type photos from the 1880s or something where the camera is actually showing you the supernatural world because the way Trump is lit, he looks like Satan and he has this, this shit eating grin and Romney is looking at the camera and he looks like a man who has just sold his soul. Yes. And yet again, I ultimately think that that was an incorrect judgment, but it's not a, an outrageous judgment. And I understand that I, I think Romney was, was working hard on an angle that didn't pay off. Listen, I agree with this, but I actually want to reach through the screen and like strangle you a little bit because last week all you <laughs> did was mock me when I was making this point about Larry Hogan, who frankly was better than Romney throughout much of the Trump administration because he was a governor, he wasn't there, and he was much more aggressive about confronting him on day-to-day -day regular things like COVID where Romney would just... Like, I've actually been more disappointed in Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney's always risen to the important moments, I think. Like, he voted for both impeachments. He does the right thing when it really matters. And I, I defend him on that all the time. But, like, with Trump, that was never enough. And it's been this post-insurrection part where everybody was like, Trump's unfit. He's not going to run it. doesn't want him to run again. Mitt Romney says that clearly. But he also sort of stays in his, well, Republicans are objectively always better than Democrats in a way that is, like, tribal and seems like too important to be on the team. Totally agree. And this is my, my thing with, with Hogan is like, if, if nobody's going to say the truth and it doesn't have to be like, well, Democrats are great now and I love them. But like, if you can't identify how dangerous your side is and sort of say it clearly and, and sort of fight, then it's all tacit permission. And I, and I, it's not fair because he is the best. These are the best of them. And so maybe it's unfair to, like, want them to be better, but I just do, because I know they know better. Like, that Mitt Romney version that you saw with Santos is like, that is the moral clarity that is necessitated in this moment. Also, the reality is that on a policy basis, guys like Hogan and Sununu and Romney and Murkowski are closer to the center of gravity of the Democratic Party than they are to the center of gravity of the Republican Party. And it's, it's a close thing. Again, talking about, like, you know, the balance where we stack it up and, and weigh it. It's not like super obvious, but it's at least a very close run thing for them just on the substance. Forget the moral clarity stuff and the characterological stuff and the inability of folks to recognize that. I wonder if like the next generation, if the rising generation, like whoever the 35 year old Mitt Romney is right now, realizes that he is better off as a conservative Democrat or if he makes an least Stefanik calculation and decides, well, I just might as well go all the way. Like if Mitt went down with a little checklist, like he had a he had a ledger, and he was listening to Sarah Huckabee Sanders's inaugural speech or State of the State or whatever, and then Gretchen Whitmer's, 
and was like, when he heard something he liked, check, and when he heard something he didn't like, X, and then he looked at the ledger at the end, it would be pretty even, I think, probably. It would like, probably be pretty close, yeah. you know? And like that's just where he lives right now, I don't, and that's like hard for him to come to terms with. Can I complain about one substantive thing in the speech last night? I know we're 50 minutes in. Sure. I know people come to us for our figure skate judging. But as a globalist, I'm pretty concerned about our decline. And, you know, of the Joe Biden things, I can get around on, like, oh, we're going to spend a little bit more on this program or that program, and we're going to tax the billionaires. Well, maybe it isn't going to be my exact preferred tax policy, but neither was going to be the Republicans. Uh, but I, I really bristle at the, oh, we need every piece of wood made in that, America that gets used on every bridge to come from the trees of fucking Kentucky. Okay. Like this is stupid. It is really bad policy. It's like anti-American in a weird way. It is. Because like what America really needs is to be able to build shit. And there was, I, I, I don't, I don't have and this. sell it to other countries. But in infrastructure, he's talking about this particularly in infrastructure. There was one example, and I'm just going to make the cities generic because I, I forget, but I was reading it in the Atlantic, my favorite globalist outlet. And it was like, in order to expand the subway in some American city, you know, it was like it cost a billion dollars and took four years to expand one mile. And like, meanwhile, in Madrid, like they built 50 miles or 500 miles and it cost 400 million. Uh, you know, I'm just making all those numbers up, but, but like Madrid, right? Not, we're not talking about Singapore, like the really efficient Asian countries. Like we're talking about sclerotic Europe yeah. and like, it is harder for us to build ship. That sucks. The, our subways suck in San Francisco. Like, that is crazy. This is like the tech hub of the world. Why don't we have a functional subway system? Like, we should be able to build you shit. live on a fault line. Or, then fine. Then build a fucking monorail. <laughs> I don't know. Or, like, do the Hyperloop. I don't know. I, like, all the smartest people in the world are here, and they're making decks for Facebook and, and going through CEQA trainings <laughs> over, like, the environmental impact of everything. Like, just build me something cool, okay? And, like, in America, we can't build cool shit because of stupid shit like this. So that, like, was the one substantive part that I was like, this is bad, actually. This is not, like, not my preference. You know, there are a few thing, other things that were like, that wouldn't be my preference, but it's fine. This is bad. And, and now both parties are doing it, and somebody needs to stand up for the globalists of the world. I'm with Tim so hard on this, and those were not the only parts. The protectionist populism that has captured both parties is going to crush us. And in part, like, here's the thing. As a political matter... I thought it was really good for Joe Biden to focus on some of those things. Like, the, there's just no doubt about it. Like, the Buy American, Made in America shit works with Americans. But it's also, like, part of what we are finding comforting is that it's a throwback. Like, the things he's saying are a throwback to a time where we understood politics and it felt sort of normal. But we didn't like those as policy preferences. But, so the, but they're comfy. We live in a moment where because of the way we are sort of fighting the toxic forces in our own domestic politics, we are missing the fact that we are declining. We don't have big ideas. Like the part that really got to me was the education uh, piece where it's like, we're going to pay teachers more. 
And I'm like, how about the fact that we're graduating 18-year-olds that are neither qualified to, to hold a job or go into the military? That we have an aging, that a big part of our aging infrastructure is that we haven't rethought education in this country. And I'm not even talking about privatized, homeschooling, you know, any of the conservative stuff. I'm talking about public education. Why can't we get a big optimistic pitch for like how we're going to revitalize education, how we're going to revitalize our infrastructure? Like I don't want to just fix cracks in an aging system. I would like, and this is where the age thing sort of does get to me. Like I am okay with the fact that just having a normie say normie things feels better than a psychopath saying psychopathic things. (laughs) But we do have to get to a place where the vision is bigger. You can't just be like a stupid pro forma, we got to pay our debts on the debt ceiling. Like, I don't know, $32 trillion of debt owed to China is actually a policy problem. It's not all owed to China, but a lot of it is owed to our political enemies. And like, we should be concerned about that. We should be talking about how are we going to compete our way out of this? How are we going to innovate our way around climate change? Like, what are we going to do, guys? And like, we just do have to invite bigger thinking. And it drives me crazy. I have a big thinking pitch on education really quick. Uh, are you ready for this? No child left behind. <laughs> no child left behind. Just like kind of a big, big goal. I have to say I had the exact opposite reaction, Sarah, which is that after the authoritarian attempt of the Trump years, which if you were on our side of it, you thought, great, we're losing American democracy. If you're on the Republican side of it, you thought American carnage. After the eight years of Obama, which was this messianic, you know, the seas shall stop rising and we are the ones we've been waiting for. And then the eight years before that, which were all global war on terror and, you know, like we were afraid to get on airplanes and we had this Manichian battle of of Islamist expansion. I was thrilled to have a moment where it's like, you know what, we could shore up some policy cracks. (laughs) nothing big going on here. We're just going to do some nuts and bolts stuff. And I found that deeply comforting in my own I disagree I get it that it's comforting. I do. No, I I understand the comforting part. I just, again, just because of the way our politics has been, we are missing opportunities. I think we're just going to look back and think this was a really important moment to start even talking about doing big things. The AI is going to take care of everything. Okay. Well, with the AI, great. Uh, (laughs) It's great. Chat GPT, that's going to solve our problems. Fission, did he mention fusion? Mona Charon's big issue, did he mention fusion in the energy part last night? I, I guess there was, this was the one thing that they were getting in on Dome on Fox. The, the, 10, yeah, the, years. Ten, the 10 years. That was optimistic. Maybe, maybe a little hot on the other <laughs> side, uh, being a little overly optimistic. But there you go. There was something there. The Fox people did not like that. I've got to tell you just a quick briefing for Fox. I know it's been a long show, but like, as you might expect, just a total alternate universe. I tuned in for like 10 minutes of Hannity, and my old boss Reince was on there, and and the morning show guy with the, the Heg Seth, the guy that beat me on the New York Times list, not that I'm bitter about that. And it's just like, you know, you're talking about speech gumbo. I mean, it's just like talking point MAGA extended universe gumbo. I mean, like they're just like spitting out words that had I, it was like hard for me to follow like what the critique was because I don't understand fully the context of of the discussion happening on Fox. So all of this is to say that like for that segment, you know, their response to the speech was, oh, Joe Biden's crazy. He wants to get rid of your gas cars. He attacked you. Sarah Huckabee Sanders was inspiring. And that was maybe the best speech since Margaret Thatcher from her. Like that was the basic takeaway from Hannity. 
I think that's probably true. But you know what? I, I checked out this morning. I took a spin through dementia Twitter because after Joe Biden gives a speak, like dementia is always, always trending. And I was going through and it actually was pretty clear to me that there was a little bit of a gulp happening on sort of right wing Twitter of, mm, I mean, he stumbled some, but like, I don't know, pretty hard to argue that guy has full on dementia. And it was pretty, you know, it was a pretty effective, like, because you can sort of count on the punditocracy, including me a little bit, like when Joe Biden is not at his best, to wring their hands and be like, this guy is too old. And that is how I feel often. But like last night, I didn't. And I think probably most other people didn't. And that is not great for the Fox News cinematic universe that definitely wants you to believe that he has full on dementia and that Kamala Harris sits back with like a puppet you know, hand up and and is just controlling him, which is what they want you to believe. Dementia does set a low bar, and expectations are everything in politics. So that is nice. <laughs> yeah, that's that right. is that is one favor <laughs> that they're doing for us over there. Well, you know, I I suspect that in a week we're going to get a post State of the Union poll that's going to show that Democratic support for Biden running for re-election has dropped even further. Because when I was writing about this yesterday, one of the things that blew my mind is that in October. So the month before the midterms, when Democrats were all preparing for a wipeout, 52% of Democrats wanted Biden to run for re-election. And then by late November, after the amazing successes of the midterms had manifested, that number dropped by like 20 points. So I, I just assume that we'll get even more erosion in the percentage of Dems who want him to run. I do think that it's probably a fait accompli that Joe Biden runs at this point. To Tim's point, I think there has to be a thing that is a precipitating event that makes not just other people think, but Joe Biden think that other people are so convinced that he can't do it, that he can't. And he's going to get raves today, I think. He's going to feel great about it. He's going to announce, and I think everyone's just going to have to live with that. All right, Jack, we'll see how it goes senior year then. (laughs) Did you guys understand that? Because I didn't. I loved it, but I didn't understand it. I thought it it was great, though. (laughs) I'm insane. Good luck in your senior year. Isn't that what it is? It it was. was, I guess it was football coach. Maybe this is a varsity, high school varsity football joke that I don't understand. I didn't get it. I played a lot of high school sports. I did not. Good luck in your senior year. I think you're going for you lost. Like It's like your junior year. It's a big game. You lost. You know, and it's like tough cookies make good luck in your senior year. Like season's over. I I, I don't know. Um, that was I think I goes to a message to the Republicans, like you lost this one. Tough break. Good luck next round, I think. Is Mayor Pete maybe adding some gray highlights to his hair, or do we think that's oh. happening naturally? Because well, Mayor Pete looks distinguished. That, really? Age comes for all. He had two kids. He had two kids with health complications. Do you know what that, yeah. I mean. Yes, I, I do know. <laughs> yes, I do know. I remember when you had hair. He's a treasury secretary. He had twins. Uh, you know. Transportation. Transportation. Whatever. He's a secretary of some kind. He has to look up, <laughs> and he has to go on Fox. He's 41. He's 41. He's younger than I am. I've got, I've, I've got some gray friends at okay. 40, 40, 41. I, okay. I think that it's natural. Tim, are you 40 yet? None of your fucking business. There's a lot <laughs> of discussion on Twitter. There's a lot of discussion on Twitter about his haircut. That's an also thing sometimes. This is something maybe you might remember, JBL, from when you turned gray. It's like you get a cut, and all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, like there are grays under there, yeah. right? And, I, and so there's a lot of discussion about the cut on, on gay Twitter. And I think that's I think that's what happened. 
Good show, long show. Uh, go hit all the subscribes. Give us the thumbs up and give us five stars if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Tim, Sarah, good catching up with you guys. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Peace.